This is The Takeaway. I'm Amy Walter, and today we're replaying an episode on American leadership. It feels particularly fitting this week after our nation lost one of our most respected leaders, Senator John McCain. The question we ask this hour, where is American leadership, both at home and abroad? And will American leadership endure? We hope it gives you something to think about over the Labor Day holiday and when we're just weeks away from the midterm elections, when Americans will elect a new group of leaders. Enjoy. In a small village in northern France a hundred years ago, the summer of 1918, the U.S. was taking its first steps onto the world stage. A hundred years ago, around this time, America was entering the world stage by joining World War I, the Battle of Bella Wood, which was the birth story of the modern American Marine Corps, but certainly recognition that American military might would matter. Peter Fever is a public policy professor at Duke University, director of the Duke Program in American Grand Strategy, and a member of the National Security Council in the George W. Bush administration. For a decade or two, for actually for about 20 years, America did not wield the global leadership commensurate with its potential power. Until World War II and Operation Torch, the landing on North Africa, followed by, of course, D-Day, that was the hinge of the century. After that point, America shouldered the leadership role, replaced Great Britain, as the leader of the free world, and has never handed the mantle off politically, economically, and also psychological power, cultural power, the recognition that America was the future, and if you wanted to be on the right side of the future, you wanted to be on the path that America was on. But in 2018, American leadership no longer looks as bright. According to Gallup, the average trust in institutions like the presidency, public schools, the Supreme Court, and organized religion is just 33%. Congress, well, it falls somewhere around 11%, which, by the way, is just over what the Emoji Movie scored on Rotten Tomatoes. It's that bad. This is the question of 2018. Will American leadership endure? This is The Takeaway. I'm Amy Walter, and this hour, we'll be exploring that question. Will American leadership endure? It is so much easier to get your arms around the question, who decides, on a question that is about your neighborhood library branch than what is going to happen with immigration reform in the U.S. Senate. The numbers of people who are being exonerated from death row, that is one of the most salient examples of the degree of change that can happen. I would like to think that because there's such a vacuum of ideas in the party right now, somebody with political ambition will try to fill that vacuum. I see all these media outlets, and I know nothing about these. I don't know who's working there. I don't know who's running it. I think it's gotten incredibly confusing for the consumer. The institution Americans most trust, perhaps not surprisingly, is the military. So let's start there. Here's Peter Fever from Duke University again. I asked him, will Americans' faith in the military last? Well, there's reason to think that it may not last indefinitely. The military focuses on this number closely. They worry about it. But why might it not last? Well, for starters, uh, if you disaggregate, you realize it's a super high level of confidence among Republicans and just a moderate high among 
Democrats. So the average numbers in the 60s or high 50s, but it's propped up by Republican numbers in the 90s and Democratic numbers in the low 50s. Also, we do see a demographic or generational shift. That is to say, the younger people have less confidence than older people. They also have less personal connections, ties, family members, immediate family members. It's their grandparents who served, not their parents. So all these reasons might point downward, but there's one more that I'll flag for you. When I started in this business 20, 30 years ago, and I'd talk about it, I'd say there's two institutions that the public has a high degree of confidence, the military and the Supreme Court. I no longer have to say that, right? The public confidence in the Supreme Court has plummeted. Why? There's several reasons, but one reigning uh, theory is that the public came to look at the Supreme Court as a partisan institution. And the institutions that the public dislikes tends to be the ones that are perceived to be partisan. Congress, obviously a partisan institution. The media, perceived to be partisan. The danger is if the military comes to be seen as partisan. If it gets too closely associated with one party, most likely the Republican Party, will that cause people to look at the military through a partisan lens? If so, that could cause public confidence to drop. Okay, let's step back now to another question of trust and leadership, which is America's role in the world. Is America the leader of the international order? Yes. If you look at the last hundred years, that's the defining geopolitical fact of the last century. This is the question of 2018. Will American leadership endure? And if I were to summarize the questions for America, I would say, first, do Americans understand the price of freedom? Secondly, do they understand the benefits of global leadership? Thirdly, do our allies trust us and respect us enough to shoulder their load? Fourth, do our adversaries fear us and don't want to cross us? And then fifth, does our government work? And those five questions are up for grabs in a way that they haven't been in our professional lifetime. Though this didn't just start in 2018, and it probably didn't just start in 2016 with the election either. So where do you begin to analyze where this question about American leadership in the world? Well, it, the Europeans begin? would begin it right after the end of World War II, or actually in the middle of World War II. They said they had grave doubts about the quality of American leadership. And and if you go back, the, the things that we're arguing about today, are the Europeans carrying their load on the one hand? Is America behaving recklessly like a cowboy? That's what we argued about at the founding of the Transatlantic Alliance. Indeed, that's the reason for NATO, was to corral the Europeans into carrying their load. And from the European point of view, tie the Americans in so they don't do something reckless like they did uh, in 1919. So what's different now? What's different now is all of those arguments have more merit today <laughs> than they did before. So German shirking on the defense budget is greater today than it's ever been. So President Trump is absolutely right when he calls out the Europeans that they could be doing more, should be doing more. They need to do more. He's right about that. At the same time, European complaints about the way America is conducting diplomacy in the last two years, those have more merit today uh, than in previous times. I want to go back to, I can't remember if it was one, two, or three of your important points to think about going forward. One of those was that Americans understand the price of freedom. Right. 
Is that really the core issue here that unless or until Americans have a relationship with what it means to have America in this role, the faith in it is never going to be able to come back and the leadership will never be able to rise. Right. I do think that American self-confidence is crucial. In the 30s, we shifted to off what academics call offshore balancing. We'll stay offshore and let the problems on the continent manage themselves. But then we had to fight our way onshore, literally fight our way onshore on D-Day in order to stabilize a broken bounce of power system. And the Americans learned at that moment that we can't afford to fight our way back on shore. We need to stay on shore. Yes, we ha- that means deploying troops on an indefinite basis in far-flung places, but the price is lower in peace maintaining than in trying to win the peace again. What you're seeing now is some elites, but most dramatically, the president himself ask the question, is it still worth it? Do we still need to do that? And when the president's asking that question, then it's so much louder than if it's just a New York Times op-ed that's asking the question. And so that, I think, contributes to the sense of doubt about American commitment to global leadership. When you think about a global leadership problem, is it really the issue of domestic political leadership problems? I I think so. Uh, If you go back 120 years, you say, what did the future look like? You saw one country, the United States, that had access to cheap energy, that was at the forefront of the manufacturing industrial revolution, and because of immigration could do a brain drain to get the best and most industrious entrepreneurial people of the world to come here and build their lives here. And because of that combination, America vaulted past the other countries that couldn't compete on those dimensions. Fast forward to today, America has access to cheap energy. America is at the cutting edge of the new manufacturing revolution. And we're still the most attractive place for immigration, still the world's uh, best and brightest want to come to America and would like to build their future in America if they could. We haven't fixed that problem. We've made it hard for them to do so, but that's for domestic reasons, not for structural reasons, say the way the Japanese are struggling with this, or even the Chinese are struggling with this. So those three legs of the stool on which we stood in the 20th century are available to us now. So the next hundred years could be our century as well, if we solve the domestic political functioning problem. Does the next leader need to be somebody that's coming from politics, meaning that the person that's really going to set the stage for us thinking about who America is, America's role in the world, does it always have to be the president? Or could this come from somewhere else? Well, one of the challenges we're seeing in 2018 is that our leaders from other prominent um, institutions, let's say tech, big tech, which were kind of the darlings of the last decade, they've uh, stumbled and gotten their shoes dirty. And so I think people doubt big tech today in a way that they might not have a decade ago. Traditional corporate America doesn't look good. The financial institutions, I think the public is still skeptical about them because of the Great Recession. And the institution that's held in high esteem is the one we don't want to come to the rescue, and that's the military. So the public still has confidence in the military, but we do not 
need, we do not want the military to come rescue us from this political crisis. Are you worried at all that, that we could be in that situation at some point? I don't worry that the military has that impulse. No, I but do that- worry that, uh, that desperate civilians might ask the military to do that uh, in some way. And indeed, that's one of the things we've seen, that President Trump has reached out to senior military officers, active and retired, to fill jobs that in previous administrations were filled by civilians. But the pattern of asking the military to rescue us from non-military threats, that's not a good pattern uh, for us to get into. So if you say, who do I look for to help us solve our political problems? It's our politicians. I want our political leaders to step up. Peter Fever is the director of the Duke Program in American Grand Strategy. And I want to emphasize his last point, that while Americans respect and admire the military, we do not want military leaders to save us from our current political crisis. That's not the American political model. We need political leaders, as Peter emphasizes, to be better at their jobs. Local leadership can be most crucial when a community is in crisis. But the support that comes with that leadership can depend on your community's socioeconomic status. Take the issue of gun violence. When a mass shooting occurs in a community like Parkland or Sandy Hook, politicians, community members, and oftentimes the family of the victims emerge as leaders. They get national spotlight and attention. But in lots of poorer communities in America, there's gun violence all the time. And there isn't the same kind of leadership speaking out, or if they are speaking out, they aren't getting the same kind of national media attention. I'm pretty sure Parkland will never have another shooting. I can tell you that in my community, there will be another shooting sometime soon. That's Aaliyah Blackman, a junior at Miami Norland Senior High School, who was on the show back in June. I think that she's right, you know, first off. And that's Jelani Cobb, staff writer for The New Yorker. I spoke to him about whose voices we value when it comes to discussions on race and how the debate on gun violence is just one example of a much broader issue of leadership that falls along racial lines. The reality of it is that we are we're looking at two completely different relationships to gun violence in this country, uh, one of which uh, elicits sympathy far more frequently and far more easily than the other does. I was just thinking about this uh, for something I was working on recently, which is the first person who I knew who was killed. And that happened when I was 17. And now I'm 48 years old. This is not a new problem. It's a high school classmate of mine who was killed the week after graduation. It is an intergenerational familiarity that should be cause for outrage. But we weigh these experiences differently because we value the people who experience them differently. So who who should be the leader on this? Or where does this come from? I think that, that touches on so many other problems. I mean, we have people who wear the title of leader and leadership, uh, but nothing has happened. Uh, and that goes back to the way that our campaigns are financed, to Citizens United and decisions before that, to the power of lobbies, to the whole array of things that have uh, gotten kind of jammed the works of people representing the interests of of the population, where the majority, vast majority of people are in favor of some form of of reasonable gun reform, and that that can't happen. And so I think that that's part of it. And so what we're seeing is a kind of return to grassroots individual initiatives because of the failure of the political process. 
uh, and it's fallen onto the shoulders of people who are most likely to be affected, as leadership often is. The young people who are saying, uh, I should not be attending funerals for my peers at this point in my life. Do you think this suggests that this is where leadership is is going to happen and where change is going to happen is people saying, the national is broken, I'm going to focus on my community. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, are you worried that the disconnect between the community and the national does still lead us to not solving these big problems that impact all of us? If the national is broken, you can do a ton at the community level. But it's only going to get you so far. Mm-hmm. So I think this is really a question about uh, how people maintain optimism. You know, if you're looking at this very bleak national picture and this ineffective machinery that's supposed to deliver change to people's lives and you take it upon yourself to change uh, where you can, uh, maybe in a small way on the on local level. But I think what makes it possible to still be optimistic in that context is that there are examples of this kind of change happening, that there are examples of mores shifting uh, over time. Sometimes it's a protracted process, uh, but it does happen. And so one of the things I think that's been notable is that when we talk to people who were opponents of the death penalty, there's been very little legislation on the death penalty in, in the past decade. But the drop, the really severe drop in the death penalty in its application has come almost entirely from local grassroots efforts, electing DAs who were not inclined to pursue the death penalty, whether it was for plain fiscal, practical reasons or for broader moral reasons, that there are juries that are decreasingly willing to impose the death penalty, that there are scholars and journalists putting out information about the numbers of people who are being exonerated from death row and creating a crisis of conscience for the public. And so people began asking themselves the question, do they really, really know that by having this policy, we won't ultimately wind up uh, executing someone who is innocent? And I think that is one of the most salient examples of the degree of change that can happen by individual and community and local activities that ultimately add up to having a much bigger cumulative effect. So who's leading the conversation on race in America right now? We like to think of that as a way we, we looked back at Martin Luther King as the leader at the time. Is that the case now? Uh, no, I don't think that there's a kind of individual who's leading a conversation. Because I don't think that Martin Luther King was leading the conversation then. He was maybe one of the more visible people in that conversation. But uh, there were lots of other voices. And I think that we, we profit when we have a wide array of conversations happening simultaneously. Uh, and it's unfortunate that because of the inflammatory and demagogic commentary that we often hear from the president of the United States, that conversation is happening at a decibel higher uh, than it might otherwise. Uh, but generally speaking, we don't need one person to be in charge of it. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Jelani Cobb, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Jelani Cobb is a staff writer for The New Yorker who writes about race, politics, history, and culture. And we want to hear from you. How are you feeling about the state of American leadership today? Is there adequate leadership on the issues that matter to you? This is Steve in Alphabet City, and I got to say no. 
where to begin? We're going nowhere on climate change because we're the only country in the world where people debate whether or not it even exists. We're going backwards on racism, and it's only gotten harder to be black in terms of wealth and income since 1980. And our elected officials consistently vote in the interests of their corporate paymasters. Public opinion has basically zero effect on them. This is Anne calling from Minneapolis. As far as adequate leadership, this administration has given none. There has been negative role models abounding, including and especially the top military, who have been taking illegal orders and fulfilling them. Hi, this is Laura from Jersey City, New Jersey. No, I don't think we have any leadership. Um, in Jersey City, we have a big problem with the politicians and the corruption. Also, we have a big problem with crime. Uh, we don't have the MS-13, but we have regular criminals, Americans born here, that are robbing, stealing, killing, domestic violence. When are we going to take care of those issues? That's what really concerns me. We always want to hear from you. Tweet me, at Amy E. Walter, or tweet us, at The Takeaway. More on American leadership on this hour of The Takeaway. Stay with us. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. So what I would say is that there is a crisis of institutional decay in our country. Ramesh Panuru is a senior editor for the National Review. He's been writing about the Republican Party and the conservative movement for years. And while the Republican Party has more political power, he doesn't think the party has found its identity. I'm not sure that there is a leader of the conservative movement. I think that other Republicans, like everybody, they've been disoriented by the political upheavals of the last few years, and they're, they've not been quite sure what to do. But what's sort of remarkable is that you've got the situation where you've got a Republican Party that's in charge of almost everything. It has a degree of power that's historically nearly unprecedented when you look at its strength in state legislatures and governorships and the both houses of Congress and the White House. And yet it doesn't seem to have any idea what it wants. And none of the folks who are anti-Trump are really supplying much more of a direction. Uh, and so they're all sort of flailing around. I think it's not it's not shocking, given that lack of an agenda, that Congress basically quit halfway through this congressional term. So what what do you do as someone within the conservative movement, someone who spends a lot of time thinking about this stuff? How do you stay engaged? Do you want to stay engaged? Well, I think that there are multiple difficult tasks um, for those of us who uh, want a conservative future. I think one of those things has to be to try to come up with what an agenda should be. Another thing that has to be done, I think, for conservatives is to try to sift what's good and what's bad in the Trump phenomenon. I do think that people who, like me, 
have serious problems with President Trump and the Trump phenomenon can't simply wish ourselves back to a pre-Trump Republican Party. Trump happened for reasons. We need to understand those reasons. We need to figure out which of those reasons have to be accommodated and which of them have to be fought. When he is no longer president, do you think the Republican Party is going to have sort of a reckoning of who are we and what do we stand for? Or do you think that they've determined that we are now the party of where President Trump is, his his ideas, his philosophies, and the next candidate for president as a Republican has to fit that mold? Well, I think that the party will be changed. Again, it won't just be a pre-Trump party. But especially in the heat of the moment, it is easy to overestimate how lasting these changes are. Look, George W. Bush had more elite support among Republicans than Trump has ever had. He won re-election, which Trump, of course, hasn't done yet. He won the only popular vote majority that Republicans have gotten in the post-Cold War era. And then compassionate conservatism just vanished without a trace. He did not, obviously, transform the party in his image in a lasting way. Nor did the failure, the perceived failure of the administration by the end, his polls were absolutely terrible. They didn't really stick with the party. Americans gave another generation of Republicans and another set of leaders a fresh chance. And I think that that's likely to happen this time, too. So are you optimistic about the future for conservatism? Whenever anybody has asked me that over the last couple of years, I'm always tempted to quote Kafka that uh, there is hope, but not for us. There is always going to be uh, room in America for a political tendency that is relatively free market, relatively traditionalist, relatively nationalistic. That side of American thought, I think, hasn't run out of possible contributions to make to America. So in that sense, I am an optimist. I think conservatism is inevitably going to have a future, but it can be a pretty rocky ride between now and then. Ramesh Panuru is a senior editor for National Review. One institution that Americans have really lost faith in the media. I think you see a lot of journalists who are making a name for themselves on Twitter by being snarky and having attitude, not really paying attention to what that does to the perception of the institutions for which they work, for the enterprise of journalism in which they're engaged. So in a way, I would say that leadership of a certain kind with the with the, the connotation of self-aggrandizement is part of the problem. That's Ramesh Panuru again. A recent poll finds that 77% of Americans believe that major traditional television and media outlets report fake news. And only 20% of Americans have a lot of confidence in the news. I think we almost need to have some kind of Manhattan project to fix the media because our country just can't afford to not have voices and people questioning authority. And that's Katie Couric. She has 1.8 million Twitter followers, over 600,000 Facebook follows. I think she can pretty safely be called a leader in the media. But she told me that were she 25 years old today, thinking about what profession to enter, she might make a different choice. 
I think I would be involved in some kind of social activism if I were 25 years old right now. You don't think you would have gone into journalism? I don't know. I don't know. That's a hard question because it is very different, but it is still such a such an exciting, important profession. And I love what I do. I love talking to people. I love trying to help people understand the world around us. I love learning together with people. So I think I, think I still, still might go into journalism. Um, but would you want to go to a big legacy newspaper or um, media outlet like a network? I don't know. There's still a lot to be said for the tremendous resources, Mm -hmm. for the reach, for still the trust that exists, I think, with some of these legacy organizations and the team, you know, that's involved. And so I feel very supportive and proud of my brethren in journalism. I think what's, what's frustrating is that there's so much of the population that dismisses them and that's a problem. Did you feel that changing when you were thinking about your NBC, CBS era time? Did you notice that shift in the way um, regular people were interacting with you or how they felt about you as a representative of a news organization? No, I didn't feel that way as much. I mean, I always was mindful that I couldn't really let my opinions be known and that I had to ask probing, challenging questions about everything. But this wasn't during the Trump era, and that's changed everything. I felt like I could really rake David Duke over the coals because I felt like I had a moral responsibility to do that. And that if people hated it, then that was okay if they didn't want to watch me. (laughs) I mean, so there were extreme cases of that. But generally, I tried to be a referee in trying to understand different points of view. And right. I think that's changed. I think that now opinion has replaced reporting. And I think that's a dangerous road to go down. But opinion and kind of playing to your audience and tapping into whatever outrage you may be addressing and whatever audience you may be addressing seems to be the secret sauce of what gets ratings today. So now you have opinions 24-7, and they've seemed to, they, they lose their power, and furthermore, they start to erode trust that, well, this is your opinion, but we really want to know the truth. We want to know the facts. But what is truth? And do you have a moral obligation to call out behavior that seems so reprehensible or not. So I think, you know, it's, it's easy to say you shouldn't speak out. On the other hand, sometimes you feel that what's going on is so reprehensible, you have an obligation. To, it's, so it's, it's, it's challenging for people, right? I see the struggle. I feel the struggle, honestly. At the end of the day, where is media and its role in in playing, what role is it going to be playing? I wish I were the all-knowing <laughs> Oz and I could make that prediction and actually come up with a solution, Amy, because it's so disconcerting because it's such a critically important institution in a democracy. And the fact that our faith has eroded in media of all kinds is just heartbreaking to me. It really is. And so I think job number one is somehow, some way, we have to figure out a way to restore 
the faith in media. I think it's so bifurcated. And as my friend Nicole Seligman says, people seek affirmation, not information. So, you know, you can see how it happens and how people get sucked into this. Somehow, we just have to figure out a way to have some of this more measured, sensible reporting get to people so they're not incited by the wrong things and by information that's been twisted to fit a certain agenda. Right. I'm of two minds of this, too, which is I think the ultimate disruption in the media landscape has been in many ways, really good. So people like us, right? Women's voices, people of color, people whose voices were never heard before now finally have a place. Oh, well, everything is a double-edged sword. Everything is a double-edged sword. So the disruption has been good in many ways. But with it, of course, comes all the stuff that you mentioned before. Well, the disruption, you know, the voices are good. I'm all for that. Absolutely. I mean, who could argue with a more representative media Well, there are a lot of people who say, I want to go back to the days when we had the three stations, when we had Walter Cronkite, and we knew what the (laughs) truth was. Well, you know, the problem is of of democracy democratizing media and the internet is there's no there are no universal standards and at one point there was an understanding that things had to be vetted edited that people with experience and an understanding the issues and a certain responsibility to be fair and accurate were behind the curtain you know, shaping these stories, selecting these stories, shaping them. Now, of course, some of them were not representative of the audience, were certainly myopic. I found that when I worked at CBS News at the, on the, doing the evening news that I often had to say, hey, let's do a piece on sexual assault in the military, or we, can, we really need to cover dating violence as a result of Yardley Love's brutal murder at the University of Virginia. There are stories that I think I was much more sensitized to that my male colleagues weren't. So obviously there are problems, there are problems with that. But, you know, I see all these media outlets and there are millions of them now covering stories. And I look at these stories and I know nothing about these. I don't know who's working there. I don't know who's running it. I don't know what standards they have, but I can't necessarily, if I'm an average consumer, say, oh, this is from blank, so this may not be legitimate. I think it's gotten incredibly confusing for the consumer. Do you see this then? We're at a tipping point and there's something on the other side or that this is just where we are. We're going to, we're going to just have to sort of slog through. Yeah. Or that we just kind of slog through. This is, this is the reality now, or is it the place where you said that it's ultimately sort of like whether it's a Manhattan project or something that we're, we're headed to getting some resolution on this in whatever form that is. Whenever I think about this, I think these are such unbelievably strange times. But I think what's really difficult, when you have a president that is this unconventional, to maintain total objectivity, because I think the personal becomes political. And I think it's infused all the coverage. And his personality is so, at times, outrageous that it it obscures all the policy issues. So everything has been become like a crazy mixed up salad with people's emotional feelings towards someone who acts a certain way and policy conversations. And so it's it's really hard. I feel I feel really I think it's a real conundrum for people 
who are covering this particular individual. And do you think this changes when he's no longer president or the train has left the station and we are now headed into this kind of dynamic? I do think it changes. I do. I think it will revert back. I could be completely wrong, by the way, to a, a sense of, of normalcy and a sense of focus much more on, on public policy and not on temperament and personality. I do. But of course, it depends on who occupies that seat. I have a feeling that people will not want this much drama. I could be wrong. I mean, media organizations would probably have mixed feelings about not having this much drama because they have profited from the theatrics of the Trump administration and the chaos of the Trump administration. It has become almost reality television, not surprisingly. So I wish I had a crystal ball, but I do think this is something, all the distrust in institutions, there was that recent poll saying people have real doubts about our democracy and whether or not it's going to be able to continue. And I've been feeling that way for a while. Partially it's because the country feels so toxic now that, that we feel so divided. And I know there have been moments in history where we were this divided during Vietnam, during the civil rights era. But I'm a generally pretty positive person, but I do think this is a very serious time. And I think it's a time for us as a country to be engaged in some really important self-reflection. Where does leadership come from? Where does it come from? Yeah. So if the the question you mean is, if if people are skeptical about about everyone, the media, like where who does can be a unifying leader? Uh, that's an excellent question. I I'm hoping some of our our political leaders will step in, but I don't know where do you With think the leaders come that, from? And so you don't think that there's somebody that can bridge that? I don't know. That's Katie Couric, currently the host of America Inside and Out on National Geographic. this hour, we've been hearing about the leaders who can and should bridge this gap. Coming up, we'll hear from folks who say that the leaders to fill the breach are out there. They are us, the citizens. But I also want to reflect on a couple of points that Katie made. No one knows what the media landscape will look like post-Trump. Maybe there will be a yearning for a leader who brings less drama and chaos. But it's also true that the current media ecosystem thrives and survives on chaos. Boring presidents don't bring the bank like controversial ones do. Then there's Couric's other important point about the lack of transparency within media organizations themselves. I'm all for big, robust, and competitive news media, but they should all have to follow the same rules of the road. If we want Americans to agree on a shared set of facts, the media needs to do a better job of setting and holding themselves to common standards and responsibilities, too. When we'd go to towns, people weren't waiting around for the government to do something great for them or to bail them out if things were bad, or to even create something new if things were kind of okay. That's journalist and writer Deb Fallows. She and her husband James traveled across the country visiting small towns where they observed local leadership firsthand. They were 
acting from their local needs and experience and assets to take charge and make things happen in a way that would help solve some of their problems, like the mill closed or the mine closed, and do it on terms that made sense for where they were locally. And here are two illustrations, both from Pennsylvania's uh, places we spent a lot of time, Allentown and Erie. In Allentown, as you know, there's been a big ethnic change. It went from being largely Pennsylvania Dutch to being largely Latino over the past generation or so. There are frictions with that economic, ethnic, and all, all the rest. But but on the whole, there's been a sense, I think, from the local and state government leadership that they were together in trying to, to bring Allentown back. A starker was in Erie, Pennsylvania, where people who are of our vintage, Deb and I are from the dreaded boomer generation, people who are our contemporaries, they have seen the GE plant there get smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think they would, many of them, if you ask them, are you angry? They'll say, yeah, we're angry. Erie is going to hell. I remember this plant was working three shifts, et cetera. But the generation down from that, people in their 20s and 30s, largely refugees who were part of the, the new entrepreneurial class in Erie, I think there is a sense of kind of get out of the way, Grandpa, we're going to, we see some different possibilities here. I'm not Pollyanna, I'm not blind to what's going on in our country. I do think there are menaces abroad and at home to the stability of our republic and to our democracy. But, slash, and, one of the things that is so exciting about our time right now, everywhere I turn, I see people starting to get literate in power and figuring out how they can start claiming voice on different issues that matter to them where they live. And that's Eric Liu. He's CEO of Citizens University and Executive Director of the Aspen Institute's Citizen and American Identity Program. He, like the Fallows, is hopeful with what he's seeing. I'm not just making a call for people to say, retreat, go local, be parochial. I actually think we're in an age of what I call networked localism, where citizens who are working on, say, gun responsibility and gun reform in Cleveland are webbing up with people who are doing that in the Bronx, and they're webbing up with people who are doing it in San Bernardino, right? Same thing on the $15 minimum wage, where Seattle, where I live, was at the cutting edge, right? But we work with folks in the Bronx and in San Jose and in Kansas City and other places to exchange playbooks and to kind of think about strategy about um, how do you frame this fight and how do you build support for this uh, in a way that can be uh, applicable to your particular place, but what are some lessons learned that you can apply, right? And I think that is a way of thinking about nationalizing your issues, but not having it be focused on D.C. Um, it's about this web of innovators, left and right, by the way, and create horizontal scale of citizen power. Do you believe at this time that we have a leadership problem in politics or a citizenship problem in politics? <laughs> what a great question. I, I mean, I think we have both. Uh, I think we have certainly in national politics, elected leaders who are beholden to a not only to a, a narrow set of interests, but beholden to a set of mythologies that are really disconnected um, from the lives that people are living, either mythologies about how America is being overrun and invaded by immigrants or mythologies about how if you take care of the, the, the wealthiest 1%, uh, all their prosperity will leak its way down. These are narratives, but they are mythologies, right? And I think uh, there are too many leaders who are bought into mythologies and have a lot of incentives to stay bought in and get disconnected from people. But I think, frankly, there's also a, a citizenship and followership problem, right? That the great civil rights activist Ella Baker, who was uh, feisty, a great effective organizer, and oftentimes was in tension with uh, Martin Luther King, uh, has a famous line, which is, strong people don't need strong leaders. 
And her point was, if you just gravitate toward the charismatic, if you just gravitate toward the hero riding in on a horse to save us, if you just gravitate toward either, you know, this is what people thought of young Barack Obama in 2007, 2008. It's what Donald Trump fans thought he was in 15, 16. You know, you're going to get a very bad kind of politics because it's going to be one where we, the people, absolve ourselves of responsibility for actually solving anything or dealing with each other as co-authors of our politics and our culture. And so the converse of what Ella Baker was saying is that in a society where the people are strong, then the leaders will follow and you'll get leaders that reflect that. But the, what you see in the United States and all around the world right now, this tendency toward the authoritarian, this tendency toward uh, the demagogic, you know, has a lot to do with the fact that too many of us as citizens are spectators and customers, not participants uh, and creators. Well, if you spend any time on the Twitterverse, especially political Twitterverse, or spend enough time in Washington, D.C., you would think that the fabric of America is fraying to the point where it's going to disintegrate. What is your take on this? And if it is the case, what do we do about it? I don't think it is the case. And this is a benefit of being based in Seattle, the other Washington. The benefit of that is seeing um, that all across this country, in small towns and big towns, there are people just fixing stuff. There are people solving problems. There are people trying to bridge divides. There are people trying to uh, formulate ways to have better arguments. There are way, people trying to create new rituals and new spaces where, you know, in, in the wake and the absence of all the old civic clubs that disappeared over the last generation, the Elks and the Rotaries, there's a new generation of people, often younger people, who are creating their new versions of gathering and their new versions of creating civic capital and new clubs, right? And uh, I see this everywhere in the country. And so um, what's different, of course, in this age of national politics, where there is a much more pronounced direct threat to the rule of law and direct threat to democratic norms, small d democratic norms, um, is people are realizing, I can't just be on the sidelines anymore, right? I got to get in and play somehow. Uh, and so the question I get most often in towns across this country is, how do I start? Where do I get involved? And my answer is just join a club. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it can be a gardening club. It can be a baseball club if, if it wants to be a, a homeless, you know, anti-homelessness club. But just the reflexing that muscle that we've let atrophy of how to organize, how to invite people, how to create a common agenda for a set of people to figure out what you want to do together. You know, our citizen muscles are hugely underdeveloped in this country. Our consumer muscles are hugely overdeveloped. So who takes the blame for that? We do, right? I mean, I think in the end, uh, you can say there are systems, uh, not least the marketplace and kind of supercharged, turbocharged capitalism, but it, it takes two to make that dance of capitalism and turbocharged capitalism work. And and we've got to remember uh, that we've got both the power and the responsibility to not just be spectators and customers, but be creating a different kind of civic life. And I'm actually hopeful that in the end, this bottom-up renewal that's happening in the United States is going to outrun and outpace and outlast the top-down toxic polarization that's happening in national politics. I'm giving every bit of energy I have to trying to be part of the bottom-up renewal of civic spirit, civic responsibility, civic literacy and power. And uh, because I'm always in the company of other people who are doing that, I'm hopeful. Eric Liu, thank you so much for joining us. Amy, thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. That's Eric Liu, CEO of Citizens University and Executive Director of the Aspen Institute's Citizen and American Identity Program. And if you want to know how you can make change and become a local leader, well, we'll leave on this piece of advice from Eric Liu. Join a club. 
Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it can be a gardening club, it can be a baseball club, it can be an anti-homelessness club. Join a club. Thanks so much for being with us this hour. Remember, you can always reach us on Twitter, at The Takeaway, and at Amy E. Walter. We'll see you next week. I'm Amy Walter. This is The Takeaway. Want to bring The Takeaway with you on the go? Subscribe to The Takeaway as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Takeaway.